Welcome back to the Not Quite Pod. Today we've got Mick with us. Mick, do you just want to quickly introduce yourself and let everyone know a bit about yourself? Yes, hello. Right, I'm Mick Scarlett, uh, and I'm as old as Methuselah. I'm one of the old, elder statespeople of the disabled <laughs> community. I'm old, old, old. Uh, I've been around forever. Uh, I was a musician, then I was a TV presenter, then I worked in the media a bit more, then I was a journalist, then I was a commentator, then I was a access consultant, then I was an equality trainer, and now I am a the co-CEO of a charity called FAB, and I'm starting up a new kind of access consult. It's called a concierge access consultancy. So it's a bit, but basically that's what I'm doing now. So yeah, and uh, I've, I'm disabled. Uh, I am a wheelchair <laughs> user. I've, I was born with cancer. So I've been disabled from, well, disabled from before I popped out, but, <laughs> but diagnosed at six weeks old. Um, and uh, I used to walk with a limp and then my back crapped out when I was 15. <laughs> So now I am, uh, that became a full-time wheelchair user when I had my first spinal cord injury. And since then, I've had two more. So I'm now on number three uh, and I'm collecting them. My plan is eventually to see if I can get in the Guinness Book of Records as the man who's had the most spinal cord injuries. <laughs> I don't know if there is one of those entries. I may already be suitable to nah. go in it. But yeah, yeah, so I'm just recovering. At the moment, I'm just recovering from my third one, which is why anyone that remembers me being quite out on the scene a lot may think, well, where's Mick? I haven't yeah. died. I'm just recovering from surgery uh, and getting used to new levels of medication, which we were discussing before we came live, but I won't tell you all about them because it's basically... Anyway, <laughs> that's me. Uh... Awesome. I mean, I want to... There's so much I want to dive into with you because, you, mm -hmm. as you've just explained, you've done a hell of a lot of stuff and a quite a, well a long experience a long amount of time but not really in the grand context of how much you got done so can you run us through yes so sort of the story of what what's got you here today in terms of like where you started out to what you're doing well, now you, yeah okay so and i'll try to keep it short because uh, <laughs> i do waffle as you can tell uh well um my story has been one of luck and seeing the luck and going for it so as far back as like when I was five, uh, my mum and dad wanted me to go to a mainstream school. So they moved across my hometown of Luton, Luton, um, and um, to get a, to get me to go to the one school in the whole town that would give me a chance. With the luck was that that was the year, 1970 was the year when it finally became legal to go to a mainstream school if you were disabled. Wild. Before that, it, you had to go to special schools. So I went to school. And I was the only disabled kid in every school I ever went to, um, pretty much. Um, and uh, But it taught me that actually being disabled isn't as dramatically different as you think. In fact, if anything, it taught me that I'm probably stronger than most of my non-disabled friends who are very weedy and always ill and moaning about stuff that you're like, is that it? So that was that was sort of the thing. And I was br brought up by parents to make me, who kind of made me feel that I was sort of indestructible. That's where the stage name Scarlet comes from, from Captain Scarlet. You have no idea what I'm talking about. But Jerry Anderson, when <laughs> I was a kid, was just king. And all of his programs were great. And my childhood hero was Captain Scarlet. Who was indestructible he could be crushed and killed and burnt and blown up and he'd come back together and that's what i felt like so 
that was great. Went to school, finished, spine collapsed at um, 16 as a side effect of the cancer treatment I had. Um, I should note that I am one of the oldest people to have survived the cancer I've ever had. There's about five more older than me. And we meet every now and on Facebook and go, getting old is really rubbish, isn't it? This bit dropped <laughs> off the other day, uh, which is great. But, um, so, so my spine collapsed and I became a wheelchair user. And so I have a really weird relationship with disability because I was born disabled, but I became disabled as well. So I mm. suddenly dramatically got, you know, my impairment got a lot worse and I had to learn to rebuild my life. So while I was at home, a slightly overweight, filled with steroids type ill person, because back then what they did whenever your spine collapsed, they gave you loads of steroids to make you heal quicker. So I went from being this tiny little thin sort of gothic <laughs> New romantic with cheekbones to this massive <laughs> meathead. But I'm like, uh, and trust me, it's never left. So it's, I've got a 50 inch chest and a, um, it's yeah. just rubbish. It's ridiculous. Having met him, anyway. make it real life. I can yeah, attest that. Yeah, he's, he's a solid dude in more yeah. senses of the word. <laughs> it's, it's most annoying because people see wheelchairs and they all think we're the same size. Yeah. And then I, I wheel into a room and everyone kind of goes, Oh, and I looked at, you know, you remember when I was young, we had action men and all these different yeah. characters, like Star Wars figures and all the, and there was one, there was always one figure, uh, in my case, it was Steve Austin, the $6 million man, that was about yeah. that much taller than everyone else. And I'm kind of that person because I'm massive, six foot three, built like a barn door. So I used to always get called Johnny Bravo, was my one. When when that was out with the blonde hair and the sunglasses, that my wife used to go, if you could stand up, because <laughs> it is a bit. <laughs> but anyway, so um, so yeah, so I was I was stuck at home, and I, I you know, it's something that I learnt from that period was that all your friends go when when you change your impairment, your friends go, and and it is hmm. it's a quite a shock, and it goes the same for if you're ill. So I think it's you know if we ever something happens with your impairment or with your life, just, you know, you get ill, everyone goes. So I had no mates. I was all on my own. And I thought, I know, I'll, I'll, I got a little bit of a bonus where um, I'd been refused what was then called mobility allowance and attendance allowance as a kid, because apparently I was not disabled enough. But then they went, oh, well, actually, we should have given you it from the age of 12. Uh, so I suddenly had a large check. So I spent it all on keyboards. <laughs> So I great. Myself, really shit synthesizers and a drum machine that went <laughs> <laughs> that was it and learned to play keyboards my mum and dad bought me an organ a bow tempe organ i asked for a synthesizer and because my mum and dad didn't understand what i wanted they bought me this also record thing that <laughs> but it meant i had a keyboard i could play chords on and then two mono synths and i just taught myself to play um, and I used to chat girls up by inviting them round to my house and then playing the Human League's Dare from start to finish. <laughs> <laughs> <That is laughs> Seconds of your life. The ticket. Oh, yeah, so I used to do the whole thing. Um, um, I got a couple of jobs when I was well enough, but it just, back then, no law, no Equality Act, you could get sacked. So I um, got sacked quite a lot. Whenever I was ill, they went, oh, we thought you'd be ill because disabled people are always sick. So I'd get fired. <laughs> and I thought, oh, bollocks, this. I'm just going to do music. So I did what everyone did in the 80s. I signed on and pursued my dream of being a musician. Uh, and that happened. I, I managed to, the band I was in got average big, sort of not signed up, but kind of big on the gigging circuit. 
Mm-hmm. I got to, I wrote loads of theme tunes and adverts and jingles and film scores and all stuff like this, which is great. Um, and one day doing a gig in a pub in Luton. <laughs> in fact, it was a club called the Tropicana Beach. <laughs> Never forget it. Um, my computer blew up on stage. <laughs> so I fixed it. And basically it was like a big black box. Like a, it was a bit like a video recorder. Yeah. Not that you'd know what, like a, like a CD, like a DVD, like a, um, uh, what's the new one? I know what you mean. I'm not that, I'm not that, uh, you know, I'm I don't that know. new age. When you, when you get to my age, it's like, you know, every, everybody, you know, well, you know, I, I remember the first mobile phones the size of a small you know, brick. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I uh, fixed it on stage and yeah. was, because Lincoln's not the, not the place to be on stage fixing a computer in a casual club when you look like <laughs> a cross between Billy Idol <laughs> and Mad Max and, you know, kind of, I don't know, yeah. and, and Johnny Bravo and, and sort of whatever. <laughs> so, so I was like, oh, my God. So I was joking and mucking about. And afterwards, a bloke <laughs> came up to me and said, hello, I'm a producer from uh, Thames TV, and I was really impressed with how you handled that. Would you like to come and do a screen test for telly? And I thought, well, at the time – basically everyone on telly was getting a record deal, Kylie, and they were all getting, and I thought, yeah, cool. No problems. Yeah. This would, mm. this would be how I get my record deal. So I did the audition, got the job. And the first show I did was with Toya, Toya Wilcox, which for my generation is just like, well, well I, mean, I can honestly say that we all had the Toya picture from looking on our walls where she showed <laughs> one of her glorious boobs. And we were like, wow, Toya. So it was a bit weird to mix and, and that just snowballed. So that lucky moment got me into telly. And then every time I saw, because people now go, oh, there wasn't any disability on telly when I was young. And it's like, well, there was. <laughs> there was telly on when I was young, disabled people were on. You know, Nabil Shaban played Seal in Doctor Who. You know, this is yeah. old, you know. And, and it, it started to become this thing where more mainstream there was lots of disability interest shows even then Hmm. but it started to become really quite mainstream interest and i'd see these programs and they go next week we're talking about disability and i'd ring up and go is it someone disabled presenting it and they'd go oh no we hadn't thought of that and i go well i'm available at very reasonable rates so i'd get all these gigs and i started working for channel 4's youth youth y-o-o-f youth department (laughs) That was run by Janet Street Porter. So I did a show called The Survivor's yeah. Guide and then went to do a show called Sex Talk <laughs> where I did one of the uh, early documentaries about disability and sexuality, um, which is available online on my Facebook page where you can watch 45 right. minutes of really old-fashioned, like really cut slow and, oh, God. You know, television back then was very different. Uh, no fast cutting, no avid editing or anything. It was basically done with tape. You you had video recorders and you played them all in and you played three video recorders into one video recorder with, and you'd go along a bit and it had a bit to the tape as you went. So you can imagine yeah. how slow that was. Um, then that led to Channel 4 asking me to do a show called Beat That, which was a kid's show. And I, so I'd just done a show about um, a girl putting a dildo on a stick because she had <laughs> and wanted to be out of wank. And then, and then they said, and they said what show. we think of, would you like to do a kid's show? And I was like, are you sure? And yeah, yeah. So I did, a, I did Beat That and it just caught the public's imagination. It was really weird. It was a little show where eight or 10 kids would be put together and there'd be 
half disabled and half non-disabled. And the point was they'd never met before. Like the disabled kids might know each other because they came from the same special school, but otherwise it was quite weird. Mm. And then they'd have to do a task, run a restaurant, go to France and buy some stuff, put on a fashion show, weird things that kids would never really get to do normally. And I was hired to be a presenter slash their really annoying older brother, uh, which I played Mm -hmm. very well. And then also to make it so the disabled kids felt like it was their show. Because if you're a disabled kid and you're turning up to do telly, if it's presented by you, by one of your gang, you feel like you own it more. So basically I did that. And that just went bonkers. So when that was going out, I was getting the same viewing figures as Jonathan Ross on Don't Forget Your Toothbrush on the same channel. And it was sold all around the world. And and it's really bizarre. Like it was only about 10 years ago. I was at an art event um, and I I saw Jenny Seeley from Grey Eye. So I went over to say hello. Hmm. And there was a a woman there, um, visually impaired from Canada, who went, hey, you're Mick Scarlett. And I was like, okay, yeah. And she went, I'd know (laughs) that voice anywhere. You're massive in Canada, even today. And it's like, that's really weird because I'm not fucking massive here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but this, I think, is the... Because the, then from there, I went on to do um, a disability news sh- magazine show called From the Edge. And that went mm. out for 11 years. It just went on forever. Wow. Um, so we were doing 30 episodes of a, a year. Um, so it's about 15, 16 hours of television over the year. And then we were doing documentaries, hour-long documentaries, and then also advising all of the BBC on how to do better portrayal um, with a thing called the Disability Programs Unit, which was part of the Community Programs Unit. And we were all a big, we had a big floor in White City, the new, the lovely, yep. now, it's, now it's just fallen a bit and it's owned by ITV, I think, like most of the BBC now. But um, <laughs> it was this massive department and there was... Um, uh, made black britain there was a couple of um so it's like the, the ethnic tv department where they where all the programs were made for like the ethnic minorities we've got the gay mm-hmm. department and then the disabled all <laughs> in the same and we were all kind of mixing together and having lots of fun yeah. um and then uh so did that but the what was weird at that time there was also julie fernandez uh, andrew miller was yep. doing tv as well loads of us were on but we were all kept apart quite a lot and we were also all really ripped off for how much we should have been paid. And as we grew in fame, we also kind of got to know each other more and talked. And it, we found out that, you know, we were being ripped off and mm. we talked to non-disabled presenters and found out they were getting paid a lot more. I'll never forget, I did a thing for Channel 4 Schools and the producer was the presenter from a show called Magpie that I watched when I was little. And mm. we, I went in and, and did the thing, audition, and he went, yeah, great, you love it, brilliant, super. And then he said, um, how much do you want? And I went, 1,500? And I meant for the shoot. And he went, a day? Brilliant. And I was like, shit, that's a fucking <laughs> load of money. And then I yeah. went, shit, he said yes too quickly, <laughs> which means yeah. that 1,500 isn't a lot of money, which means, one, I could have got more from him, but two, yeah. I've been royally fucked over for all the other stuff I've done where, you know, people yeah. going, oh, 150, 250, maybe 300 if you're lucky. And then suddenly you find out that 
that this is, you know, when yeah. you talk to someone that works as a presenter, he thinks that a thousand five a day is good money. So, and Julie, I mean, Julie was on, I was acting in Dangerfield and she um, found out what all the other actors were on, went to the mm. producer and the director to say, can I have some more? And they said, well, you're lucky to be working at all because we don't need to employ disabled people. And so that kind of really hurt. Mm. And I mean, she, she gave up doing telly after a while just because it was so de depressing to, to yeah. can, every job you go for is like, you've never been, you've never done it before. There's no career development. And that I think is the big difference. It's not that there wasn't anyone on telly. It's just that they never got famous. Like now you can be on the last leg. You can be Sophie or Shani or one, you know, they, 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 yeah, they, they yeah. get that. That the reason why I sighed was because I brought it up on the podcast before. Why is Josh Riddicum on that show? He doesn't need to be. He's not no, even that well, funny. You see, the thing is, what you've got to remember, because what is it now? 29 shows. So it's been on since yeah. before the Paralympics. And yeah. he was there to be the token non-disabled person. Yeah. Because... They thought, because I know, I can imagine the room. Yeah, we've got to have a disabled show, right? And it's got to be funny. <laughs> yeah. So we'll get Adam Hills, because he's really funny, right? And then we'll get Alex, because Alex applied to be a presenter about sport. He knows about sport. It's going to be Paralympics. He'd be good, yeah. But we yeah. need to have a non-disabled person on, because otherwise it will just be lots of cripples, and no one will want to watch that. So they got Josh on. But yeah. now what's happened, of course, is that the public has become more used to seeing and, and discussing and, and having that sort of sense of irreverent humour about disability. And like you said, now just Whittacombe just seems like he shouldn't be there. <laughs> he's yeah. sort of making jokes at the expense of other people and they're all going, ha, 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 And you always kind of think at any moment Alex Brooker could turn around and go, you pissed off, Ginger, whack. Do you know what I mean? And it's sort of, you know, do you know what yeah. I mean? And it's like, I, I don't get it. I don't, but... I also think that one of the things is that there are lots and lots of people in the industry who are actually disabled, who don't mm. admit to it. Because, they because don't. you know, as we've expanded our mind and it's not wheelchairs, you know, hearing impaired, visually impaired, or, you know, it, it's, it's, we've grown and our community has got bigger and, 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 yep. and more understanding of the fact that you, you don't have to look disabled to be disabled. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you, I mean, I, I, I very recently have been diagnosed uh, with ADHD uh, <laughs> and a few years before that was diagnosed with uh, a type of dyslexia called Erlang syndrome. I've lived my mm -hmm. whole life not knowing this, just getting on with it being the wheelchair guy. And yeah. now suddenly I'm like, oh, but I'm, I've got more than one of these joyous yeah. fun impairments yeah. because it never really impacted on my life. So who knows? I, I always look at Josh Willingham and just kind of go, I reckon there's something going on there. He just he needs he needs a yeah. Of, I mean, I know, can see what you mean. Equality. I think it's he I, needs a couple of disability equality sessions, and he'd be one of the secret it, gang. <laughs> What's yeah, it? the non-visible impairment gang. <laughs> I mean, I, I say Josh Whitcomb. I think it also doesn't help that personally, I don't find him funny. So that I'm also even more inclined to be like, why are you there? The other two are hilarious. <laughs> what do you You're useless. What do you mean? What you mean is, is you can think of some, you know, equally auburn-haired sex bomb in a chair who could possibly yeah. do that job much better. I think that's what <laughs> you mean. I know it's that feeling well, sir. I This is one of my, I. it's funny because I love seeing the new young disabled people on telly, you know, and at the same time, I'm like, I'm so much better than them. 
So, <laughs> I was really good. I am a, I'm a natural. I just it just comes out. I mean, I love chatting. I'm good at getting stories out of people, and I'm, I'm like, oh, I'd have been better on that, you know. <laughs> and I I applied to be an expert on DIY SOS because I wrote to them and said, look, you can't keep doing it for us. We need to be there. We need to say. Yep. You know, instead of like you watch it and they're putting gravel down, and it's like, no, no, don't put bloody gravel yeah, down. Yeah. Gravel's yeah. bollocks. Right? Oh, it's compacted. It doesn't make any difference unless you glued it together. It's still <laughs> in gravel, right? And so I wrote to them about it, and they were, and I, I did a screen test and everything. But I know that what happened was they were like, will you be able to get in the route and oh, dangerous? Yeah, and it's like. That's, that's what I do anyway. I go to building sites. Mm. I, you know, I was working on HS2 before they cancelled it. Damn. <laughs> you know, going with a hard hat and a big high-vis thing going, do this, do that. And I think yeah. that – but it's it's weird the way that, that that hasn't changed. You still have those shows where people talk about us in the third person as opposed yeah. to us talking about us. Yeah. And, you know, you've got the last leg and you've got sort of, you know – I mean, one of the things I love is the fact you've got shows like um, Steve Brown on, on Escape to the Country. Yeah. He just levitates into these country <laughs> piles and then levitates out again. And no one ever mentions the fact that he can't get into most of them. Here I am in this old building and it's lovely and old. And you're like, how the hell did you get up those steps? And, yeah. and I love the way he always goes, well, I'll leave you to have a look upstairs. And it's like, of course you bloody will, mate. <laughs> I'm okay what's with- funny is, What's funny is there's never a show where he's doing it and someone else is disabled as well. If they ever have someone mm. with mobility issues on, he doesn't present it. Like yeah. one of the other presenters do. And you're like, but surely he's the guy. Like if you're going to say, oh, I can't walk very far. I've got like, they have someone on the other day on one of them that's talking about having an ME. And I was like, well, Steve yeah. would have been perfect for this because there's this camaraderie. Oh, yeah, no, I know that yeah. problem. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, no. Yeah, oh, no, yeah, don't yeah. do and the other thing that's really funny, because you know they had this thing recently saying the BBC uh, has dropped the amount of representation that it's done yep. from 8% to 5% or something. Well, do you, I don't know if anyone, hey viewers, do you know, but anyone at all that appears on screen that's disabled, they try to count against the number of people. So I've done a couple of things where I've been interviewed like about something it's called contributor in the industry and Mm -hmm. they've written to me after and said could you add your name to our list of disabled people on telly and i've written back and gone no piss off i'm not i'm not i'm not i wasn't on i was being interviewed about something that's not the same as being the interviewer being the actor there's no point having an extra that wheels past every now and again. You've got to have a main character who's disabled. I can't wait to see Kitty. Is it Castle Castle Main in um, EastEnders? Because ironically, her mum, Lucy Alexander, who used to do uh, Homes Under the Hammer, started her career alongside a certain Mick Scarlet when we were both presenters on Nickelodeon. (laughs) (laughs) When Nickelodeon started, we were both, we we were like, this is like 93. Um, we were the presenters. So I was the weird punk goth and she was the kind of <laughs> day glow baggy hippie girl. Um, and we used to do the live continuity between the cartoons. Love it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, that was, that was an interesting uh, period in my life doing eight hours straight live telly. <laughs> Ouch. Ah, great. Good fun. 
So, yeah, so, you, so I don't know. I don't know what we were talking about there and how we got that's to that. Right. But that's, you know, we have covered your it, not me. I don't care. It's all right. Um, we uh, we got to sort of like your performance career. So how mm. did you get more into the consulting and the new venture that you're setting up now? Yeah, right. Well, I, <laughs> as with all TV presenters, um, basically in where was it? The, the two, uh, 1999, I had a car accident. And this was when I broke my back for the second time. Uh, and it took a while to find out because one of the ways they find out you've broken your back is that your legs stop working. If your legs aren't working already, they're kind of a bit <laughs> at noticing it. So it <laughs> yep. got quite, I got quite ill before they found out. So I couldn't do, I gave up telly and I had to be rebuilt. Um, so that was when they took all of my spine out and replaced it with titanium rods, bits of mm-hmm. smashed up spine and titanium rings. So I'm actually worth more dead as scrap than I will ever be alive. I always said to my wife, if I die, make sure when you get the ashes, shake them. Because if they don't, if they don't rattle, you haven't got the bits that you can sell on the, on the scrap metal market. But um, so when I came back, it was probably about two or three years. Um, the industry had quite massively changed because in that time, social media had started to take off. The internet was yeah. really big. And I didn't really have an online presence. All of my videos were on VHS, you know, I, yep. I so, so people, you know, it, it was like starting all over again. And by that time there was new people like Adi Adepitan coming up and I, and yep. I was, I put on loads of weight because when you can't, when you're not well and you're stuck in bed for yep. six, I was late for, for six months, you eat. Um, yep. So, <laughs> so I had to try and, so basically I, I gave up. I kind of thought, well, it, it, I didn't give up. It gave me up. So I um, was really lucky. I was part of all the way of all through my career. I've been advising places on accessibility. I, um, one of the first places I ever worked on was the Ministry of Sound in London, where I used to go there all the while clubbing. And I went to the management and said, there are, it's a really accessible club, but there's some things you've got wrong. So they hired me and I basically advised them how to make, um, the lose better. Um, yeah. and then we created a light free zone, uh, cause one of my best mates had light sensitive epilepsy and she loved raving, but could very rarely go raving cause the lights yeah. meant that she'd not be good. So, and there were little things like that. I trained the, 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 the team to understand that disabled people want to have fun just like everybody else. And, you know, we're not yeah. going to cause trouble and we're not difficult. And so I'd done a bit and I joined what was called then the London Access Forum. So it was basically like a panel of disabled people that worked with the new GLA. Yes, because GLC, then a GLA. GLA um, and Ken Livingstone was the mayor then. And he decided, he sort of said, well, it's really unfair because you lot are working for free and there are professionals in the industry who aren't disabled that are making a butt ton of money telling people what to do instead of disabled people telling people yep. what to do. So he arranged um, a training course with the newly formed Inclusion London. And I was one of the uh, eight people that went on it. So I did it. And while I was taking it, like everyone else was kind of going, oh, I don't want to do it professionally. It'll affect my you know, my life, my income and all the, you know, my benefits yep. and stuff. And I just could see that this was a great way of making a really easy living. And then when I found out how much they pay you, um, I realized that I was going to make more in one week than I'd made in a whole week in television. And I thought, right, that's it for me. Uh, So I started being an access consultant 
And again, it was one luck that I'd got this reputation for being mm. good in nightclubs and gigs. So I did a lot of work with new clubs and, you know, like I, I helped yeah. Coco when it first opened and all stuff like that. But also um, about the same time I was helping with the, just after that, I was helping with the, the build up to the Paralympics. When we got the, the Olympics and the Paralympics, yep. I started working with LOCOG as one of their access consultants and, and sort of help training the staff and what have you. And I met a, a wonderful woman who's their kind of senior um, disability expert, Margaret Hickish, mm. who sadly is no longer with us, but she was great. And she was like this force of nature. You'd go into a room, she was Scottish, and she'd basically just in a much politer way, call everyone a bunch of C words and, and tell them <laughs> to get it right. And she would not take it. She wouldn't let, they, no one got yeah. away with anything. And so we worked together for a bit and then she went to work at Network Rail and said, Mick, would you like to come with me to train up our staff? Because I'm a TV presenter, I've got the jazz hands. So yeah. we work, I went over to work with her as a freelancer and was doing the staff training for all of Network Rail's customer-facing staff. So that's a lot of people. I think you need and to that's how it. I got into the training stuff. So, And then I realised that training is basically like being an actor and a TV presenter. You learn your lines. You, yep. you've, got a, you've got a really small audience that you've got to keep engaged. And you do. And you have to – and you're trying to teach some stuff in a fun way which is basically what kids' TV is. <laughs> I mean, you're yeah. kind of, hey, yeah, kids, yeah, yeah. But you, you, let's learn something new and have fun. Yay. Yeah. So kind of really, I was the perfect person for it. So I did that. And then she sent me on some courses to train up to be a trainer. Then uh, the government discovered that they had completely and utterly missed out a section of the Equality Act that said that all of the public sector had an extra duty called the public sector equality duty yeah. to do more than just businesses uh, about equality. And so then Network Rail were given the task of inventing how this is done. And I was part of the team of 10 that worked on it. And so then I became one of the leading experts on that, um, which was great. So that's, so I was doing all that and doing all access and diddly D and um, it was all freelance and I'm yep. quite lazy. So I was earning just enough to be happy. I wasn't, yep. you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to retire and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then in, 1990, in 2019, um, a weird year, um, my mum was diagnosed with terminal, terminal cancer. Uh, yeah. and uh, I was driving up to see her and had another car accident, and that broke my back again. <laughs> so, um, but again, no one spotted it. Then my mum died, and kind of, it felt really weird, because obviously as a kid that had cancer, I've spent my whole life thinking I'll die young. And suddenly I realised, you aren't going to die young, because you're not bloody young anymore. You're old. And then I thought, well, in that case... I don't want to be doing piecemeal bits. I want to leave a proper legacy. I used yeah. to think, you see, that I didn't need to worry about legacy because people would remember me for being Mick Scarlet's superstar, but now I know that they won't. So I've got <laughs> to do something. You know. <laughs> Diane always laughs and said, it's like Bender in Futurama when, when they were going to the, the Egyptian planet and he builds this giant statue. Remember me. It's like, <laughs> I have this weird, I can't have kids because obviously having cancer as a baby, my, 
my I am the ultimate in Jaffa. So uh, <laughs> so there's no I'm not going to pass on my genes and think well one day my 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 you know my great grandchildren will talk about great you know granddad Nick on some weird um, uh, genealogy program. Um, yeah. And I know that I, mean, I was thinking maybe I'd get buried when I die so that in time team 20 like 30 20 something you know yeah. robot tony robinson will dig me up and go look at the savagery that the medical profession <laughs> did to this poor man because my skeleton on the inside just looks like the biggest nightmare you've ever seen i am more held together by luck and magic than by bones and biology so <laughs> but then i thought no no that's rubbish use your skills to do something yep. positive so i started working with Buckinghamshire Disability Services, or BUDS, um, and yep. we designed a kind of package that's like an online guide to how to be an inclusive business in the hospitality, retail, and entertainment sector that's online, you can sign up for, and you get that. Yep. And that was quite, I thought that's quite good. And then I'd been doing, when I was 16, and I lost all my friends, and it was all weird, uh, and I was sort of like quite depressed. My social worker said, why don't you go to a fab club? Uh, and I was like, what? And back then, it didn't just mean fab, like P-H-A-B, fab, like, wow. It stood for something. Um, I, just think about it, folks. Uh, back then, it stood for physically handicapped and able-bodied clubs. Um, it doesn't anymore, trust me. But anyway, so I went along, and I went to a couple mm. of them, and kind of they weren't what I wanted for my future, but yeah. they gave me the confidence to, it's almost like if you know what you don't want, you can build what you want. Know what you want. And I was like, this yeah. is, this is oh, no, this is like special schools. Um, so I didn't, so I went out and went pubbing and clubbing and went down the electric ballroom and down the Camden Palace and just had a great time. But I started getting involved with Fab again because they were trying to update, trying to modernize. They asked me, we haven't got any, kind of trustees or anyone that's disabled would you want to work with us and I said yeah that'd be great with the goal of making them more modern and more up to date yeah and that was quite a few years ago and then the job came up the CEO um and I've applied to be the CEO of quite a few disability charities <laughs> to no avail because apparently I'm not <laughs> CEO material, but I thought um, <laughs> I'll apply for it. And, and just, we, it clicked because all of the board yeah. and charity is a very weird thing because it's a bit like working on like a program like succession in that you've got all these people that you have to answer to. And, you know, there's, and, and yeah. the board has a chair that's like a big control and that's great. And it's brilliant. But I'm not used to that. <laughs> I've, I've yeah. come from doing every, whatever I like most of my career. If people piss me off, it's going to go away. And, and, but they wanted to modernize what fab was and our, my ideas, they loved, they loved the fact that it, you know, kind of to get a disabled person to lead was really important. Yeah. And because I was still not well, we had this project where we said, why don't we co CEO? And I'm, uh, leading with uh, a wonderful woman called Dawn Vickers yep. and her brother has got downs. Uh, she's got lots of connections to disability that kind of mean that she's, because we don't just work with disabled people. We work with disabled people, friends, family, yeah. carers, young carers. Um, it made sense. 
because I don't know what it's like to be the brother or the mother or yep. the of a disabled person. I only know what it's like to be me. Um, and so we've got this great relationship where yep. she can handle one bit and I handle the other. Also, she's worked in charity most of her career, so she's really good at the bits that charity. I don't get. Yeah, and yep. and like getting funding and talking to like groups and whatever. And I'm kind of Mr. Crazy Blue Sky Thinker. Yeah, let's do this. And that's why this new consultancy has sort of started up. The first year we tried to do 50-50 job split and it didn't work. So now we're having projects that are ours. So Dawn's doing some stuff, I'm yep. doing some stuff. And I'm because part of our kind of ethos and core mission is education, I'm trying to educate. Um, the plan is to get business and to pay so that we can then give free training to charities and disabled people themselves. Because one of the things that I always think is I spend a lot of time talking to non-disabled people about the social model and about reasonable adjustments, mm -hmm. but I don't talk to many disabled people about it. And lots of, especially young disabled people have never heard of the social model or they, they, they hear about it and think it's about staircases and, and lifts and ramps and all this kind yeah. of stuff. And it's not. So, that's so the plan is to use the big checks from the clients to pay for sort of providing this ongoing service where you know either we'll do it online or i'll come up to your school your group your whatever and we'll have a chat about what it means to be disabled and what it means for you as a disabled person when you start realizing that being disabled isn't about what your body doesn't do right it's about what society doesn't let you do because you don't do it like other people. Yeah. And, and I mean, I remember the moment <laughs> so I've been, been doing television for years when I had a, a, a moment where someone, um, basically people didn't like me very much in the disabled community. I was a bit not, I wasn't considered very political. I was a bit, well, Hey, um, and mm -hmm. I did a couple of things that weren't considered Right for the Done community. Thing. And I, I became a pariah. And uh, I was at a <laughs> Channel 4 event, and I'll never forget Simon Minty spat at me. We're mates now, but I had no idea what was going on. And this wonderful woman, uh, Vicky Waddington, um, trapped me in a lift. She had a big power scooter. And she basically, mm. I was in the lift, and she wheeled in, blocked the door, and said, you don't know why we're all pissed off with you, do you? And I was like, no, <laughs> I, was like, I was leaving terrified, you know, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and, and she explained to me the social model and why community mattered and why the fact that you don't have to share the same impairment to be disabled and you do share the same exclusion. And I honestly, I went into that lift one person and came out another. And when people say, you know, they have a, a, a religious revelation, that's what happened to me. I had, I had a moment of revelation when I looked back on my life and went, oh, right, it all makes sense now. Mm -hmm. And things like when I was seven, my father died of a heart attack. And everyone said to me, that's the stress of having you, that was. And I was, so I brought, grew up thinking I'd killed my dad because I was disabled. Yeah. And then and after I came out, I was like, no, you, you shitty bastard grands and aunts and all the people that said it to me. You made me feel like that. My whole life I've carried this guilt that I might have killed my dad because having a disabled kid was so stressful. 
when reality was society made it difficult for him and for me and for mum and my brother. And, but more importantly, heart attack killed my dad, not me. Mm. He should have eaten well and run and done more exercise and stopped drinking beer all the bloody while. But that's what it's like. We get told it's our fault that your parents can't go on the holiday they want, or your, you know, my mum and dad had to move to get me to go to, to a school that would take me. So they moved yeah. from the house they loved to a bungalow <laughs> because they must have guessed that at some point I'd lose the ability to walk entirely. Talk about jabby, but it's, do you know what I mean? That you yeah, we yeah. don't appreciate the amount of guilt that gets laid on us as disabled kids. And it happened, you know, even if you become disabled, if you break your back in a car accident or whatever, you know, once you get over the trauma, mm-hmm. one of the things that happens is you start feeling guilty because you're making other people's lives more difficult. And it's like, it's not your fault. It's society's fault. And the great thing is you can't change you. You know, there's loads of people who go, oh, I'm trying to walk and I want to do this. And I, by, you know, technology will make me see or whatever. And the truth is that you're never going to be like you were or like, you know, the normal idea of what normal is, even though that's complete bollocks. But, but you can change society. We yeah. can all make society fairer for everyone. Because that's the truth. I'm, I was watching um, David Baddiel's uh, programme about being Jewish last night, and he kept talking about, well, no one would take the mickey out of disabled people. And I was thinking, if you've been outside, you know, yeah. the disability hate crimes yeah. through the roof. You know, we're on the cover of all the newspapers going, well, it's all right for them with their free car and house and millions of pounds. You know, and <laughs> the idea, basically, yeah. all minorities get it in the neck. You know, I mean, without being funny, earlier on tonight, yeah. I made a joke about Josh Whittacombe being ginger. You're ginger. Do you know I mean, like, even people with yeah. red hair are okay to take the piss out. This idea that we're all, you know, we, we, we live balance, in a society yeah. Yeah. where everyone needs to learn about being fairer and nicer and kinder to each other. And, you know, all this, oh, woke. Woke is great. Because what woke means is you're not being a shithead, Right. The PC bit of your thing, PC is great because all you're doing is going, should I use that word? Yeah. Should I say that thing? Should I be the that only- person? And I think that's, that's, that's a grown up way of being because I grew up in a society where, you know, comedians on telly would talk about sambos and, you know, yeah. use, use words that we would now go, what? And yeah. that was, so, so we've done that. We did that with that minority. We're still not there yet, but we started. What's wrong with doing it for everyone else? I don't know. I can believe you know? that. But I think my concern with the big push on language and the way we talk and what we say and what we can't say is then it creates an era of confusion because people don't know what they One thing's acceptable to say to one person, one thing's is. So, for example, I'd have no problem with someone calling me a disabled person, whereas some people do have a problem with that word. So I, it's that whole thing Again, I was going on that, about on here going... Yeah, but that, that comes from the fact that there are loads of younger disabled people or newly disabled people that don't like the word disabled because they think it's about them. And that's why I want to teach people that disabled has nothing to do with you. It's to do with the fact that you live in a society that stops you being as abled as you should be, as you could be. It's all about potential, right? And it's funny, I do lots of stuff with people from the, you know, the neurodiverse community, especially now I know I'm one of them. And <laughs> lots of those people go, well, yeah, but I don't like disabled and I don't like the social model. And I'm like, but the problem is you are the epitome of why it matters because 
once society understands that you just think slightly differently and you will do things differently, but it's no difficult for anyone to get it right and just ask you how you want to be treated, then you are not, then you're right. Then you are no longer disabled. And that's the point of the social model is we can get rid of that word when we get to the point where people stop using the word non-disabled or able-bodied or, or normal, because it's all rubbish. But I mean, I will, with my training hat on, it is the correct term in the UK under the social model is disabled person, not person with disabilities. Because as I've said, the disability is not your condition or impairment or illness. It is actually why, the way you're treated because of being different, either physically, mentally, cognitively, whatever. And the reason why it matters is because if you start thinking that way, and I'm now I'm, I may be becoming a little bit evangelical on this because I know I do, but if you start thinking that way, we can build a better world. If you go, I'm disabled because my legs don't work or my eyes don't work or whatever, again, we're back to that you can't fix that. That's just you. So then you end mm-hmm. up with what we call, you know, it is part of the medical model, which says, you know, basically you can't walk, so life is difficult. Whereas actually, yeah, there's always medical stuff. But, but I learned at school, like I said, that non-disabled people, people that aren't disabled, have just as many illnesses and bits falling yeah. off. And trust me, when you get to my age, I'm probably one of the fittest people that I know. And I've <laughs> had three broken backs. So do you know what I mean? Because all of my mates are getting old. And, you know, yeah. I, I, I'll never forget we were at a party recently um and one of, one of my mates from the old raving days said has anyone got any heartburn tablets i've got <laughs> terrible heartburn and all of a sudden we were all passing heartburn tablets around yeah and i thought well you know in the 90s these tablets would have been different that's all i'm saying so do you <laughs> know what i mean it's it's it, it yeah. ages you know and an inclusive society for disabled people or is inclusive for everyone this is the big one is, you know, you can be, you know, I'm more understanding about racial differences and religious differences and sexuality. and that. But if you build an inclusive society for disabled people, we all win. And the the thing, whole thing around COVID should have taught us that. We, we went into lockdown. Everyone suddenly had an experience of being disabled under the social model because they didn't go out or do anything. So it's basically what our lives are like. You know, you lightweights, you're all complaining about a few months not being able to do what you want. Try 50 odd years or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, but what should have, what we learned, we could run a society in a different way. We could work, we could live, we could get on. And we've come out of that with a slightly different way of working, which was so much more, so, so much better for many disabled yeah, people. completely agree. You know, podcasts, a perfect example of what went in lockdown. Yeah. And now it means that disabled people like your good self that want to break into the media can prove their worth at their own pace, in their own way, and then they have a – so do you know what I mean? When yeah. I was, you had to be I, spotted in a, a gigging in a pub yeah. on the off chance if you were lucky. Now you can prove it. This is the point. That's what inclusion is. It's – it's not about going, we need more ramps and lifts and, you know, braille and, you know, hearing loops. It's about changing the way you think that says things can be different. We don't have to have one road from A to B. We can have all different routes from where you start to where you end so that people can take the different routes they like. And then that way, we all end up in a world where, you know, if you're, you know, my next door but one neighbour used to uh, – <laughs> 
he went away on holiday to Cornwall and went tombstoning. Now, <laughs> someone young, great, but this guy is my age and should have known bloody better. So he jumps off a cliff and lands into a pool of water that is much, much shallower than he thought it was. So his legs explode. They just shatter, right? So he's now in plaster up to his groin and his blah, blah, blah. And, mm-hmm. and eventually he spends four years in a wheelchair and all he ever talks about is how difficult it is. He's now riding bikes and he's not tombstoning because his wife won't let him, but he's back to being, you know, kind of fairly fit. It's still, yeah. he is still at winter. He knows when the cold's coming because his legs are and all this kind of stuff, but he's, he's up and about. Yeah. And I said to him, I said, but think, imagine it this way. If you're, if I had, a, if I lived in a world that worked for me as a full-time person who cannot walk, when you break your legs, yeah. your life would be a piece of piss. Whereas all he moaned about was how he couldn't go to the pub and he couldn't go to the loo. And he, do you know what I mean? And that's the point. We're yeah. all going to get old. We get old. We, when we, to, to be honest, when, when disabled people get old, it's not that much of a shock. Oh, I can't yeah. do that anymore. Oh, well. Do you know what I mean? I'll move but on. For most, yeah. for the, the majority of I the non disabled world, getting old is horrible. And I think our world cons- will be better. I think my concern, I completely agree in the physical sense of the medical model, completely agree that the more accessible the world is in general, the better it becomes for everyone. Because as I always say on here, like people need to realize more quickly that you have a 99% chance of becoming like us. We have a 0% chance most likely of becoming you. So (laughs) that's... Even with robot legs or wheelchairs that climb upstairs or bionic eyes or cochlear implants, we're still not going to be quite... And also there's something about being disabled, I think, that there's more to it. There's there's an identity of it. We do have a shared experience of being excluded, of being belittled, of of like I said about the guilt and all that. But but even that, yes, we will get rid of it. I think one day. I think one day it will become normalised, as a lot of other things are becoming gradually. But I think that there'll still be like you know, there's still a you know, if 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 everyone didn't see colour, you'd still have colour. You know, if everyone didn't yeah. care what their sexuality was, you'd still have sexuality. It wouldn't, it doesn't yeah. disappear. So that's really important to remember that we would still be different, even if being think, different was great. And I think that's... My big... Yeah. My big...